Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, an MSNBC legal analyst, co-host of this podcast, as well as of Hashtag Sisters-in-Law. And I'm also the person who wears Hashtag Jill's Pins. And today's pin is a special one for our guest, Kimberly Atkins Store. It is number one, and that's because she got the Outstanding Room of the Year from Room Raider. She is on the cover of their new book of special rooms. So everybody should look for that book and celebrate Kimberly Atkins Store. So a couple of weeks ago, we hosted the first of our hashtag Sisters-in-Law iGen Politics crossover series featuring a fabulous, insightful, and fun conversation with uh, Barb McQuaid. Today, we welcome another one of Jill's uh, hashtag Sisters-in-Law, as she said, Kimberly Atkins Store, and we know it will be equally exciting. So let me tell you all about Kimberly. She is a senior opinion writer and columnist for the Boston Globe Opinion and a very new and important publication called The Emancipator. And we'll talk to her about that so you'll learn more about it. She is a frequent guest host on NPR On Point and is, of course, an MSNBC contributor focusing on politics, although she is also a lawyer and hence a member of Hashtag Sisters-in-Law. After practicing law, Kim went to work for the Boston Globe, became a senior news correspondent for Boston's WBUR-TV covering political news from the national aspect from Washington, but with a New England focus. And she also served as the Washington bureau chief of the Boston Herald, focusing her coverage on the White House, Congress, the U.S. Supreme Court, and national news. We are very excited to have you with us today, Kim. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be with you both. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. Um, So let's start with your roots in Michigan, which you share with our previous Hashtag Sisters-in-Law guest, uh, Barb McQuaid. You grew up in Detroit and went to college there at Wayne State University. Um, We asked Barb for the first question why she liked Michigan. And I'm wondering what makes you uh, be attracted to Michigan and what do you enjoy about it other than Detroit hot dogs? Yes, the Detroit Coney's are delicious. Yeah, you know, I had what seems to me like when you think of the stereotypical Midwestern, you know, urban suburban upbringing, I feel like I really had that. Um, I, I was very lucky. I have two very hardworking parents. I'm the youngest of six, and I I know being a journalist especially being a journalist based on the East Coast, one of the biggest criticisms that is often lobbed at us is that we have this insular way of thinking, this you know, East Coast way, inside the beltway, um, very myopic way of seeing the nation, and we don't understand real America. And it's like, oh, no, oh, I understand real America, the good, the bad, um, and the different ways that people think. And so having that fundamental understanding, I think um, – is really important. It informs my journalism and it informs how I see the world, how I see other people. Um, and so I, I really, I really enjoy that. And look, I grew up also around politics. My dad was a union official and he was very heavily involved in democratic uh, politics as I was growing up and seeing that. Um, and I, again, I was observing this and seeing the good and the bad mm-hmm. of it. 
and getting an understanding about how political power works from a very early age. So my upbringing certainly allowed that. Michigan is a, a place that is is very political, um, particularly when it comes to things like labor. Um, and so that was a, a, a great education. Um, I am a proud graduate of Wayne State University, where I went for undergrad. At the time, I was a student there. It graduated more Black students than any non-HBCU in the country. Wow. It was a really important uh, institution. Um, a lot of people, uh, for a lot of people, it's commuter school. So people who are working, it's a working class community, a working class city, Detroit. So it gave um, them access to uh, an affordable world-class education. And that's really important to me. I know we talk a lot about, you know, Michigan, go Barb, uh, and Michigan State, but Wayne State, I call that the other, the three of the big three um, there, because it's a huge school. Um, so yeah, I, I really got a really great grounding um, foundation from my upbringing in greater Detroit. And I'm really grateful for that. I have a couple of questions about your college experience because that's so interesting. But before we get to that, um, I heard in one of the discussions in Hashtag Sisters in Law that you um, were also a cheerleader. Uh, <laughs> did that start in high school or was that college? How did that begin? That was in high school. Um, and I didn't intend to be a cheerleader, but I, I'm really glad that I was. So I loved sports growing up especially basketball. I was a huge Detroit Pistons fan. I liked, you know, my sisters played basketball and I would love going to to their school and seeing them play um, and just loved it. And I wanted to go to, you know, I wanted to be at all the games. So I wanted to be on the basketball teams. I am terrible. I'm coordinated at a lot of things. But <laughs> basketball is not one of them. So I can't run and dribble at the same time, which is a problem if you want to play basketball. And a good friend of mine, she was so funny. She was on the team and she's like, oh, I can get you on the team. I mean, you, you'll mostly be on the bench, but, and there were some good players on our, our team. Some um, went off to play uh, basketball in college. She's like, I mean, you won't be playing all the time, but I'll at least get you enough to, so that you can be on the team. And she took me out on the court one day and she tried with all her might. And she's like, wow, you really you really don't have any coordination. And so I tried out to be a cheerleader just so I could go to all the games. So the cheerleaders in my school cheered for girls and boys wow. basketball, cheered for football, cheered for everything. So that way I was a part of the event mm -hmm. um, and I had a role and it, it was a lot of fun. I was captain when I was, when I was a senior. Wow. So wow. I have to interrupt for a second because I took tennis lessons and the teacher who I was paying told me to quit <laughs> he said, you have no idea how a ball bounces. You can never be where the ball is to return it unless you understand that. So just give it up. That's how bad I was. Uh, Sorry, Victor. Well, I, I, don't know if there's an, uh, I don't know if there's an equivalent cheerleading to get you into tennis <laughs> matches, but I guess I should just watch that. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Um, let's go back to your college years, Kim. Um, what were you interested in studying in and what were you involved in um, in college? Like, did you know what you wanted to do? I did. I knew I was going to law school. I knew I was going to mm -hmm. be a lawyer since I was about 12, I think. Um, and so wow. for me, college was just a way to spend four years, learn some things while I waited to go to law school, um, really. And so I bounced around majors a little bit. And then I thought, you know, I really enjoyed writing for my school paper in high school. I wanted to try out radio. There's a, a one of the NPR stations, uh, the Detroit's NPR station is based on Wayne State's campus. Um, you know, maybe I can get an internship there or something. And I thought I would do that. And I went to my college advisor to see if I could be a journalism major and still go to law school. And she said, yes. She said, what? Well, but you should really write for the school paper instead of trying to do radio because of your lisp. And I was like, what, what lisp? <laughs> Apparently I had a lisp. I had a speech impediment. And she thought that that would make it too hard for me to be a broadcast major. So I don't like being told or, or have it be implied that there's something I can't do. So I went to one of my professors also did speech therapy. And so I uh, took speech therapy lessons with her to get rid of my lisp. She also got rid of my Midwestern accent. So I don't see basketball anymore. Um, <laughs> and, but I loved, but I was writing for the school paper and I loved it so much that I stayed in print. And um, even when I went off to law school, in law school, I 
I wrote for the school paper there. Actually, my friends and I revamped uh, in a defunct law school newspaper um, while we were there. And I, as a lawyer, I would ghostwrite mm. uh, articles for other lawyers in, in local papers. Oh, wow. So I still loved it. I kept it up. It was always in the background. But then after practicing law for a while, um, and I knew I didn't want to do that forever, journalism just seemed like the logical thing to do instead. I really missed it. And so in pursuit of one career, I ended up finding out that I really had a passion for another. I think there's so much good advice embedded within that and particularly just not letting anyone tell you that you can't do something. Um, Correct. You can still do it because look where you are now, which is amazing. (laughs) Um, So on the topic of law school, young people are often told that they shouldn't go to law school unless they're absolutely sure they want to be a lawyer. Do you subscribe to that notion? And if not, what would you tell someone who's thinking about going to law school? Yeah, so my advice is go to law school if you know exactly what you want out of it. And it doesn't have to be practicing law. But don't law school is definitely not a place to go to find yourself, to buy some time, just because you think a law degree will be cool to have. Um, with the exception of practicing law, even careers that are very law-specific, you don't necessarily have to go. I mean, if you look at someone like Linda Greenhouse, one of the best Supreme Court reporters that's mm-hmm. ever lived, she didn't go to law school before she became before she started covering the court. Um, Nina Totenberg didn't go to law school before she started covering the court. So you don't necessarily need it. Law school is a valuable thing if you know what you want out of it. If you know you want that specific, it's because it's very specific. It's not like medical school where they teach you to be a doctor or dental school where they teach you to be a dentist. They don't really teach you to be a lawyer. They teach you how to think in a very specific way. Um, and it's also extremely, extremely expensive. Um, you know, I write about student debt. The majority of my student debt is from law school. So don't take that on just because you don't know what else to do. Just be really clear about what you want. Talk to people who've been through it, know what to expect, and then it could be a great thing. Of course, for me, I did kind of the opposite. I went to law school knowing I did not want to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I went because I wanted to be a journalist. And at the time, there was so much discrimination against women in journalism. Of course, there was in law too, but I just didn't know about it. I knew about the journalism problem. And I thought that maybe I'd be taken more seriously for a good journalism job if I had a law degree. I never expected to practice law. And I can echo what you just said, because as a result of that, my first year was just torture. If you don't want to be a lawyer, the first year of law school is painful. It's awful. It's really hard. And it's justified if you really, really want to practice law. But if you want to be a journalist, it led me to take a year leave of absence to really think about it and to work as a journalist, sort of as a journalist. I was an assistant press and public relations director of the Assembly of Captive European Nations, quite relevant in today's news world because it included, of course, Ukraine. It was all the former uh, countries that had belonged to the Soviet Union. But Mm -hmm. anyway, so I did the opposite. And so then you did obviously go to law school uh, in Boston, and you did go into private practice. But Mm -hmm. it ended up, as you said, you found it wasn't all that terrific. You changed careers. But talk about your time in private practice. And you were doing trial and appellate litigation on the civil side. Yes. Um, So tell tell our listeners, you know, what exactly does that mean? What do you do when you first get out of law school and you go into that in a law firm? So I was working in a small law office. I began working there um, while I was a law student. I was an intern uh, at a small law office in Boston. It was I was the only person uh, practicing in the office who wasn't related to any of the others. It was run by my <laughs> old boss. Um, his name was Bob Harrington. May he rest peacefully. Uh, his son, Bo, his daughter, Rachel, and me. Um, I was the I was like I think I was the only person in the office, including staff, who wasn't you know, Boston Irish, you know, <laughs> I was, I was like an adopted member of the family. Um, and so I, I learned to celebrate St. Patrick's Day as heartily as everyone else. Um, it was great. But it was a great group of people, a supportive group of people who 
threw me right in right away. I mean, one of the biggest challenges of young law graduates when they do go into private practice is that they usually go to, especially if they go to big firms, they're usually given this grunt work to do, right? Mm -hmm. That it's really stuff that nobody else wants to do. They're reviewing documents. They're doing research that, you know, is mind numbing or something else. I remember coming into the office the first day after taking the bar. I hadn't even gotten my results yet after taking the bar. And there were files sitting on my office that had been, we divvy up the work and the caseload. And I had my own caseload from the beginning. And it was up Mm. to me to manage um, these cases. So what we did, we were primary plaintiff side. um, But we did some insurance subrogation, which is basically if an insurance company, the insurance company was our client. So if an insurance company pays out a claim, and someone was at fault that caused that claim to happen, we would seek litigation options to go after to get reimbursement for that claim. So we were defending the insurance company, but we were on the plaintiff side. I also did some employment discrimination. I did. Uh, I had a medical malpractice case, which was so hard. It was so just emotionally difficult, um, but it was good um, learning experience. I did a little bit of family law, um, in which I learned that... <laughs> The fights between a divorcing couple, for example, is never about the law. It's never about the stuff. It's not even really about the law. It's like, oh, wait, no, I have to be a therapist now. Okay. Um, You learn a little (laughs) bit of that. Um, And so it was really interesting. I went to court a lot, argued a lot of motions. Um, I never conducted a trial first chair, but I, I helped with the trial and I argued appeals at the state and federal court. So I got to argue at the First Circuit Court of Appeals. Mm. Uh, I lost brutally, but it was a great experience. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was very active. I was doing exactly what I wanted to do, which is why I knew when I wasn't when it didn't feel like it was the right thing for me, I was certain it wasn't the right thing because I had the best coworkers. I was given a ton of responsibility. I learned a lot. Um, I had a, a supportive network. So even if that wasn't it, if I was in the best situation and it still wasn't great, then I knew, okay, this is just not my, it's mm-hmm. just not, it's not for me. So that led you, of course, to switch to journalism. And as part of that, you actually went for another degree. Um, I and did. You share with me Columbia because I went to law school there. You went to Jern School. And I would have gone to the Jern School as a way of getting a better Jern job, journalism job, except that I had never taken the graduate record exam when I decided that I wasn't going to get a good job. But I had taken the law boards as a lark as part of a constitutional law political science class I had taken. Um, And so that's why I ended up at Columbia law school instead of journalism school. Um, Of course, you're so much younger, we wouldn't have overlapped anyway. But how important do you think journalism school is for entering the field of journalism? Can you do it without journalism training? Just like you said, you have these two Supreme Court reporters who didn't go to law school. Yeah. The answer is absolutely yes. So I went to journalism school in a lot of ways, Jill, similar to the reasons why you went to law school. It's because I had been practicing law I knew I wanted to get into journalism, but I knew I couldn't just walk into, I remember saying to a friend, this is funny now, I can't just walk into the Boston Globe and say, give me a job, you know, that I need to do something (laughs) to prove to them that I could do this. And one idea I thought was journalism school. I knew I was moving to New York, so I only applied to Columbia. Um, And I didn't think I'd get in. I think at the time they had like a 10% acceptance rate or something really low. And I ended up getting in. Um, And I thought that that would be a great way to help make that transition um, into it. But no, you don't need journalism school. I was just at uh, the journalism school this past weekend for alumni weekend. And we were talking about a lot of things, including student debt. And, you know, different people from different years were talking about what the tuition was. It's a one-year program. Um, They have other programs too, but the program we took was one year. Um, and you know, some people who were there in the eighties are saying how it was like 10 or $12,000. I was like, Oh my goodness. When I went in 2000, 2001, it was $35,000. And now it, the tuition starts with a seven Oh gosh! and oh. it's just like, so no, the answer is no, you don't have to do that to be a journalist. Cause you're gonna, you're not going to make much money as a journalist. Um, what's really, I think most important 
in journalism is that you have a broad foundational understanding and an inquisitive spirit about the world. You know, being a journalist means you have to learn, at least my experience is you're going to have to learn a little bit about everything. You don't have to learn everything about one thing. I guess if you're in a really technical journalism job, you need to know you, you may need more specific knowledge, but generally speaking, the more you can understand about the world, the better. And you also don't need to know it all because you're, you're doing that. The purpose of your job is to figure things out, is to do the research, to do the reporting and get that strong understanding. So I think it is that natural curiosity, um, yeah. a strong intellect, understanding of the world, which is the best foundation to be a good journalist. And I think that law school also helps because it does yeah. teach oh, you how to ask the right questions and how to analyze the information you have, how to coordinate it all into a compelling narrative. Those are very good skills, as long as you don't start writing like a lawyer and right. write like a, a person. That's the one thing. Even in law, I, I've always tried to write like I learned in, because my undergraduate degree is journalism, to write like I learned in journalism school, not like I learned to write in law school. Same, same. I don't think I ever wrote like a lawyer, um, yeah. which I think is why I did well in litigation, particularly, because you you have to convince a judge that your argument is right, convince right. a jury that your argument is right. And I think the plainer you make it yeah. and the stronger and the more you get to the point, the better it is. Exactly. Very interesting. So, Kim, your first job as a journalist was actually for the news company you now work for, the Boston Globe. You served. You also served as a reporter for several other news outlets, including um, the Boston Herald and Lawyers Weekly. Uh, what was your first experience in the newsroom like, and uh, was it different at, um, I guess, the different publications you were at? Yes, it was very different. I mean, it was really wonderful to get a job at the Boston Globe. I had lived in Boston, practiced law in Boston, so it was my hometown paper. Um, and I was in journalism school. I remember I didn't get, there was a career day uh, where uh, recruiters would come from different newspapers and I didn't get a slot. You had to try to sign up for slots with the recruiters and I didn't get a slot with the Boston Globe and I was devastated. So I followed the recruiter home. She, not home, but to the airport. So there was an airport shuttle to give them back to. So I just get on the shuttle and go to LaGuardia with her and sit down and just start chatting. Um, and made friends. And at the end wow. of the trip, she's like, do I have your resume? And it's like, I don't know, but here it is, just in case. And she goes, are you oh flying somewhere? Are you traveling? I said, no, I just wanted to ride with you. You stalker, you. Oh, no. <laughs> but she called me back. She said, look, at the time, um, the Globe didn't hire graduate students as interns, as summer interns, only undergrads who were going back to school. And so she said, but you know what? I found this other internship that's funded uh, by the Kaiser Foundation covering health. I can give you that one if you're interested. You know, I can, you can apply for that one. And I said, yes. And I got that internship. And then I ended up getting hired out of, which is exactly why they don't, um, they only do undergraduates who are not graduating yet because they don't want to feel like they need to offer someone a job at the end of it. Yeah. But I, I did it and I got a job at the end of it. So I covered health and science. Then I covered some of the communities around Boston, just general assignment reporting. I was sitting at the Globe um, and Herald too. I was sitting next to award-winning journalists who I'd read and, and mm. was watching what they did and learning from what they did, which was fantastic. Um, so that was really um, just priceless experience. I also was hired, I started the week before 9-11. Mm -hmm. So mm. all of the reporters at the Globe at the time wrote a story about every Massachusetts connected victim uh, of 9-11. And remember, two planes left right. from Boston Logan Airport. Yeah. So there were a lot of people, a lot of people impacted. Um, and so I had to spend a lot of time talking to a lot of grieving families, um, which was excruciating. I almost quit. Um, mm. But I learned a lot from that too. And then when I moved to DC, I got a job, a dream job covering the US Supreme Court for the Lawyers Weekly Papers. And I, I felt like I was pinching myself on the first day I went to the Supreme Court to cover an argument um, was the day that the court handed down um, the decision on the so-called partial birth abortion ban, the federal ban, um, Gonzalez v. Carhart. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for the first time in a long time, but for the first of many times, issued a scathing bench dissent. Mm. 
mm-hmm. um, about basically a warning sign about what the court was doing. And I had to remind myself to keep writing notes and keep being a reporter because the mo- just the monumentous nature of that moment mm-hmm. hit me that I was sitting there watching history being made. Um, and I was always just so humbled to cover the court as a journalist and, you know, all the pieces of my education and my background coming together in a really wonderful way. I also met this guy at the Supreme Court named Greg Storr, but we can talk about that later. Was it that day? I met, it, if it wasn't that day, it was that week. It was the first week wow. that I was working at the is court. Is that right? Oh, met tell him us about in the press that. Room. No, no, we'll <laughs> stop and tell us. That is fantastic. For those of our listeners who don't know, Greg is now the husband of Kimberly Atkins' store, and yes. they have been married for about a year now, right? Almost a year, and, yeah. And you're having a celebration because COVID sort of limited your wedding, for which, <laughs> by the way, you made your own dress. And we do want to get into talking about your clothes designing business. But first, I want to hear about how you met Greg. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a couple of things about that. Great. I, th- I think it was the same day. The first day I went to cover the court, there was construction at the courtroom. So the press office was actually a trailer that was set up outside. Oh. Oh. And so I, you have to go through the court security to get to it. And the marshal wanted to see my press pass before I could get in, but I had to go in to get my press pass, right? So I was trying to explain this to him. And then who walks up but Linda Greenhouse and says to the marshal, no, this is a public building. She is a, she has the right to be inside. You let her in. So first of all, I'm floored that I'm there. I'm floored. I'm like, oh my God, that's Linda Greenhouse. <laughs> and so she like gets me into the press office. So I'm, I'm already like, my mind is blown uh, at this moment. And then, you know, a very nice man at some point says comes up to me and says hi i'm greg and i said hi i'm kim and i found out he works for bloomberg news and uh that was we met right there in the trailer uh press office at the court what a great story oh my gosh i love it i'm i'm sorry victor i interrupted you no no that's such a wonderful pass up yeah and the rest is history oh that's amazing wow um so you worked in both local print and national television news but i like to focus on the state of local news in particular this is something that really concerns both jill and me um even in chicago many of the local news sources have shut down especially during covid um i'm wondering how important is local news and do you think there's any way to reverse the trend of more local news sources um shutting down Yeah, I'm really concerned about it, too. I mean, Chicago was one of the great, you know, multiple newspaper towns. And, you know, even I grew up reading the Tribune and sometimes and, you know, you had that. I grew up with the Detroit News News and Free Press. Daily News as well. I grew up with the Free Detroit Free Press and the Detroit News, you know, the Boston Globe, Boston Herald. I've worked for both. I enjoyed that competition. Um, the state of local news is in terrible peril. I feel very lucky and honored that I've worked primarily for local and regional news organizations. Um, but my my poor former employer, the Boston Herald, I was devastated when it was bought um, by Alden Capital, the venture capitalist, uh, some people call them vulture capitalists, um, that eat up tiny newspapers and just try to wring them out of whatever profit they can make and just destroying journalism and good news coverage in the process. I think right now, especially given the state of our democracy, understanding what's happening is so important. And that starts at the local level. I've always said that what happens in your mayor's offices, in your city councils, in your school boards is so much more important than what happens here in Washington. And I think that's even more so now because of the way that these local um, these local bodies are in some ways being manipulated, in some ways really steering, the, being used to steer the national conversation. And if you don't have journalists there keeping an eye and informing the public about what's happening, it's dangerous for democracy. So listen, I'm lucky that I work now for a news organization that's owned by a billionaire. And that's the truth. Those news organizations, your, your Boston Globes, your Washington Posts, your Bloomberg News, they're going to be fine. But without that sort of financial backing, local news organizations that are still trying to get ad revenue and and do other things are really going to be powerless to either closing altogether or being taken over by these venture capitalist funds. 
in a way that just is is devastating to to journalism. It, it breaks my heart. So for every young aspiring journalists out there listening, hopefully um, they'll consider going into local journalism. But I'm wondering from young people that maybe you've talked to, how common is it or is, is there an interest among young people to go to uh, local journalism first after graduating from college? Or are you seeing more of young people going into or wanting to go into national news and um, cover that? Well, I think journalism has changed so much is that like when I I thought even going back to journalism af- as a second career, back then the pa- the career path was you went to some small news publication somewhere, you got up and moved. You know, I had friends who worked in in Little Rock and worked in in, you know, Akron, Ohio and and worked at small papers and then you worked your way up to the bigger papers. But even by the time I got out, news was changing. And so, like I said, I started at the Boston Globe. I was very lucky. Um, And I think being a lawyer was one reason I was able to do that. But nowadays with online publications, with startups, with podcasting, with digital news platforms, with substacks and all this, there are so many other ways for journalists to begin their careers that I think that's one reason that they don't have to go to, you know, the Akron local paper to get their start, um, just the media landscape is just so different now um, that there are v- uh, so many other ways to get involved in journalism. So I just think the, the industry is changing so much and so quickly. So one of the things I um, found out is that you were a guest host on C-SPAN. And funnily enough, you actually hosted um, two of my AP government teachers, Andrew Kaneen and Dan Larson, in oh, 2018 great. for the cram for the exam C-SPAN review session. And I was just doing a quick search up of your name and I went to C-SPAN and I was like, oh, those are my teachers, which is such a pleasant surprise, oh, which is great. also like how small this world is. So I'm wondering, talk to us a little bit more about what it was like working for C-SPAN. Oh, my goodness. So first of all, I remember that cram for the exam show, and it was so much fun. Oh, that's great. I love that. So, yeah. And you were so adorable, let me just say. (laughs) Thank you. You know, I really enjoyed um, hosting C-SPAN. So it it came about when I was uh, covering the Supreme Court. I was on Washington Journal, the morning call-in show, as a guest because I'd written a story about the Supreme Court that they brought me on to talk about. Um, and then uh, the executive producer asked me if I'd be interested in being a guest host. They have a couple of journalists that they use as guest hosts to fill in when one of the regular uh, wonderful hosts that they have there, like Pedro and Greta and others, um, you know, get get a much deserved day off. So I said, sure, I like learning new things. I'll, you know, I've never done hosted on television before. Um, and so C-SPAN has this reputation, right? Especially the call-in shows that the callers are can be uh, rather colorful, and they can. I also did this through. I did it uh, in during the transition from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. So it was a particular uh, time in our nation. Um, but I really like the idea of listening to people, listening to people where they are and getting a better understanding about what a broader set of people think. I think, I am certain that the the viewers of Washington Journal, when I was hosting during that time, just as I did, were not as surprised at the results of the 2016 election, for example, as most of my friends. I certainly wasn't, because you could hear things that were happening. We were talking to people who had voted for Obama and who were telling us that they were going to vote for Trump and why. We were listening to people explain their views. And sometimes they were from, you know, some of our worst instincts. And sometimes they were other things. It was a complex set of reasons why the nation was doing what it was doing. Um, And I found it really edifying. I also learned that particularly, and yes, sometimes people would attack me and, you know, because they'd didn't like the media or thought that C-SPAN was biased or thought that I was biased because sometimes I appeared as a commentator on Fox News or thought that I was biased because sometimes I appeared as a commentator on CNN or MSNBC. And I learned in doing that when someone called and was angry about a policy or angry about me or something, I would ask, so what do you do there in Schenectady? Or what do you do in Albuquerque? What's your job? And they would tell it. Well, so has, how has your job or your life been affected by the policies here in Washington, D.C.? 
and they would say it. I say, well, what would you want your lawmakers to do? What, how do you want your public officials to serve you? And they would talk about that. And at the end of that conversation, they would more likely than not say, you know, love the show. C-SPAN's great. Thanks for taking my call. And if you met people where they were, spoke to them as humans and listened to them and let them certainly not let them be abusive or, or, you know, disrespectful, we would end that call. But if they were speaking, if you speak to them with respect, they usually spoke to you with respect. I hope that's still the case. I worry a little bit about our country. Well, but I want to talk I was really about gratified that. by that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that because that leads to sort of two different things. One is you are, of course, now an opinion writer for the Boston Globe so that you do express your opinions. But we're talking about facts in that context. And the problem now seems to be you can be respectful. But when you say, tell us about how X, whatever that happens to be, affects your life or tell us how your life is better because of Donald Trump's policies. Everybody I've ever talked to about that cannot answer because there is no way. And I can debate as long as there are facts, but when it's just this, well, I believe, and I believe because Donald Trump said it's true, how do you deal with that? It's a lot harder, yes, and we have, and also um, the the Trump administration and the former president really ushered in this era of politics being personal, politics mm-hmm. being divisive and small and hitting, you know, um, e- even the nickname pejoratives that he would label his opponents with. It just changed the tone of the conversation. So it was no longer about, you know, I don't like Obamacare. I don't want, you know, government health care. I don't, I think that there are too many, um, um, too many, you know, policies that are giving people too many benefits or things like that. It's not about that anymore. It's about, you know, owning the libs or, or, you know, making, um, wokeness or just things that don't, it's not, you're not even talking about anything, but it just creates sides. It creates this tribalism, whereas mm-hmm. people attack each other personally. And I felt that as a journalist, that it's one, you don't have to agree with me. I would, I will listen to anybody who has a different view than mine, but most of the time, the criticism that I get is in form of a personal attack and that I just dismiss outright. Um, but that's the way things have changed. So I think even I think what the point you're making about facts is an important one, but I think before we can even get to the facts, we have to get through the personal attacks yeah. and the nastiness. Um, and then, yes, you get to the, the, the facts. I am an opinion writer, but one of the things I love most about working for Globe Opinion, and I know this is the same for other um, responsible news organizations and their opinion pages, we report we report and our pieces are based on reporting. They are based on facts. Now we can draw our conclusions based mm-hmm. on what that reporting is, but it's not just me, you know, standing on a soapbox talking about what I think it's, you know, we'll talk a, a, about my emancipator piece, but that was months of research that went behind the proposals that are in the racial wealth gap series. It, it was, I've talked to experts. I watched congressional hearings. I went through volumes of reports. It's still based on facts. You can disagree with the conclusions, but you can't disagree with the facts. So I think we are, if we move away from that, it is really dangerous for journalism as well as um, our democracy. Excellent point. And So let's talk about opinion writing, because we haven't really had um, too much discussion on iGen politics about the difference between fact reporting and opinion writing and how you made the shift from reporting to opinion writing and how you approach it and how how you get to um, have an idea for what would be a good piece to write an opinion on. Um, Yeah. So it's usually based on what's happening. It's usually based on news and and, um, responding to what's happened. So I still write, for example, about the Supreme Court. Um, This week, the court um, issued an opinion that I had already written a column about um, 
that opinion, knowing that it was coming up. So it is often based on what is happening in real time. Um, again, I do my own reporting on it. I don't just rely on what the news side has written about it. Um, and it's based on something that I think if I can bring a certain perspective to an issue from my standpoint, then that makes it more, that makes it more attractive to me as a topic. If it's something that I think can bring some enlightenment or nuance to a public conversation that's happening, um, if I see a perspective, especially as a black woman that I can lend, certainly I wrote a lot around the, the confirmation hearings of, uh, soon to be justice, Katanji Brown Jackson, um, if I can bring a unique perspective or expertise, I, I often write about legal things. Um, those are the topics that I'm drawn to most. But I also don't like to be pigeonholed. I mean, I've covered Middle Eastern policy. I've been to China. I've done a lot of things besides just the law and writing about race. And I don't want to get pigeonholed into those topics. But um, but if I can bring a perspective and make people think, I mm-hmm. think that's ultimately my goal. So do you think trying to make people think is an important aspect of that? Yes, because if people don't examine even viewpoints, particularly viewpoints that are different from their own, how can Mm -hmm. they support their own? How can they challenge and decide for themselves what is the right thing? I think too many people parrot talking points. And I think the way to get around that is to engage people and make them think about why they think, uh, why they believe what they believe. And I think mm-hmm. that's really the true uh, proverbial um, public square, yeah. you know, marketplace of ideas. I want to engage in that. I want to be an active part of that. And I want other people to be an active part of that, too. So I, I want to mention something, which is I think it's very important to bring new voices into the opinion field. Um, and I took a course from Op-Ed Project, which is a one-day course on how to write an opinion piece. And I took it on a Sunday. And on Tuesday, James Comey got fired. (gasps) And I went, oh, I just took this course and I have something to say about that. And that's really what led to my new career. But I want to say to everybody. Oh, wow. That's a fantastic story. We'll put a link in our show notes to the op-ed project because it really is a good way. And I have been, I would say, encouraging Victor, who has now had successfully published numerous opinion pieces, including one. Is it out yet in the Boston Globe or is it soon to be out? Not not yet, I think. I must have read a different one. Okay, sorry. Okay. I did it's, read your, but I did, I have oh, read yeah. your work, Victor. Yeah, he great. had one in the Chicago Tribune, one in USA yes, Today. Yes, I think maybe that's the one and, I saw. And now there is one that they have accepted at the Boston Globe. So um, that, I mean, it's a terrific thing to be able to get your point across. And in one of them, he has suggested a new department for the White House, which I think is a brilliant idea. I don't, is that one out yet? Because I don't want to give it away if it No, not isn't. yet. It's not, okay. <laughs> Shut Great. up, I can't wait to okay. see it. It's a really great idea that I think is a real cause. But okay, sorry, I'm, I'm shutting up and letting Victor ask the next question. You're good, Jill. Um, So recently, um, the Boston Globe teamed up with the Anti-Racist Project and launched The Emancipator, which you briefly mentioned um, a little while back. You're a senior columnist there. First, tell tell our audience about what The Emancipator is and why it's so needed now. Yes. So The Emancipator grew out of a conversation that Dr. Ibram Kendi at BU's Center for Anti-Racist Research and my old boss, Vina Vina Vek... And my old boss, Bina Venkatraman, who uh, was editor of the Globe's editorial page, there was an event that they did, a Zoom event uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. And after that event, they had a chat and they were talking about abolitionist newspapers um, and how these newspapers from the 19th century didn't just advocate for the end of the institution of slavery, mm-hmm. but they wrote pieces that talked about how Black people can become fully participating citizens in society, not just um, not be enslaved, 
and not just vote, but run for office, not just have the right to access an education, but to start schools and to be intellectuals uh, at the top of uh, academia, not just... Um, you know, be able to work, but to start businesses and and to be the heads of industry, how to make Black people just fully participate in society. And it was just really revolutionary and forward thinking for the time. And we wanted to take that same approach to look at the discrimination that that is exists in American systems today and say, well, how can we remove those barriers so that we can realize that ideal? So I start with the term, um, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness from the Declaration of Independence. And that's why I started my series for, on the racial wealth gap. It's like, you know, it's a fundamental ideal. You know, our founders called it unalienable. It belongs to all of us, but there are barriers keeping some people from being able to access it the same way. So how do we remove those barriers? And that's where I started. Um, that's what I tried to do with this series. And how can people get The Emancipator? So you can find it at theemancipator.org. It is an independent uh, project, so there is no paywall. Um, we do we have gotten a, an amazing amount of support. You can also support it. You can find out on the site if you want to support that kind of independent journalism. But it is, even though it uh, the Globe is one of the co-founders of it, it is not behind the Boston Globe's paywall. Excellent, excellent. So we. I want to close with some of the little known things about you. Um, so I, we've already talked about you meeting Greg and your recent wedding and your upcoming celebration post COVID, not really post COVID, but in a time when we are more able to celebrate together. Yeah. Uh, but something people may not know is that you have a second business. You are an entrepreneur in clothing design. Not only did you, did you design your own wedding dress, but you have done lots of other wonderful designs. And there's Brisby talking to you, too. He likes Brisby likes fashion. He yes. does. He definitely does. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so I, I did. I, I, it's not currently up and running just because I've there was the pandemic and then I got very busy with a lot of things. Um, but I had a, a, a clothing design business for women's wear. It came out of the fact I've, I knew how to sew because my mom was a seamstress and I would help her and she taught me. Um, and then when I came to Washington in particular covering the Supreme Court, the suits and clothing, like the professional attire that you would wear as a woman here, first of all, it wasn't my style or it didn't fit right. And so I started making my own clothes and I preferred wearing dresses to a suit to the court because it was more comfortable, a little more... Um, you know, I, I could, it just fit my lifestyle a little bit better. And I started making my own. And then my friends thought, oh, that's great. What, who, where'd you get that? Oh, I made it. Oh, can you make me one? Okay. So I started making things for my friends and then other people started inquiring. And I thought, hmm, if I'm going to make it for other people, I'm going to charge them. And so I need to learn how to start a business. Like what I went to the um, local government office and said, okay, if I want to start a business, what forms do I need? What permits? And I figured it out. I started a business. I turned it into an LLC. I, so I learned wow. that aspect of it myself, mm -hmm. too, while also um, making the clothes. And it was a great learning experience. I connected with um, particularly the, the Washington, D.C. fashion industry, but even the fashion industry beyond. I was the local president of the international uh, fashion group International, the International Fashion Trade Association, which had members like Anna Wintour and other people. Wow. Um, my yeah, I did fashion shows and it was really fun. It was a ton of work, but it was really fun. Um, and I miss being in the middle of that uh, a little bit. But my journalism career just really uh, got so busy that I had to put that to the side for a bit. But I'll go back to it. Good. And maybe you'll be a candidate on runway. And <laughs> I'm a famous Project designer. Runway. That's too yeah. stressful. That's too stressful. Because oh, they make God. things out of like trash and stuff. I don't want I don't want to have to do that. I want to just make the pretty clothes that I want to yeah. make. <laughs> so um, you missed the last episode of hashtag sisters in law. And we talked about naming your memoir. So I'm gonna give you a chance to tell us what you would name your memoir. <laughs> Oh my goodness. What would I name my memoir? 
Um, I think it would be treading my own path in six inch heels. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. One of the first titles I thought of for my memoir, which ended up being called, of course, the Watergate girl as a way of capturing the era when we were called girls was dancing backwards in high heels, which captures the obstacles Mm -hmm. that women have to overcome, including doing everything men do only backwards and in high heels. Um, That's a great one. Yeah. The the other thing, and and one of my favorite pins for my book tour was a picture, a a pin of a couple where the woman is dancing backwards in high heels. It's fabulous, fabulous pin. Um, And the other thing is, okay, so we're about to wrap up. And one of my favorite things about you, among many, many, many favorite things, is your singing. So <laughs> what's your favorite song for the day? And can you sing us out of this episode? Um, what is my favorite? So I'm trying to think. It is, it's May, it's spring, um, warm, warm weather is coming. So maybe something like that. Here comes the sun, do, 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 do. Here comes the sun, and I say, it's all right. <laughs> that was great. Bravo. Was spectacular. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we can see your wonderful background, which was the number one winner on Room Raider. Yes. And uh, so a 10 out of 10. And your clothing design, which is your artistic, your singing, you are just such a wonderful person, and we thank, oh, thank you very you. much for being with us today. We hope you had as much fun as we did, and I know that our audience is going to love this episode. Yeah, thank, thank you so much, Thank you Kim. so much, Jill. Thank you so much, Victor. Thank you to both of you for having me here. This was a lot of fun. It was a real treat. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics. We hope you enjoyed part two of the hashtag Sisters in Law iGen Politics crossover, and that you'll tune in next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. In the meantime, follow us wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to us on YouTube. Um, you can also like this video on YouTube and hit the bell for our weekly notifications every Wednesday. Thank you so much for listening or watching.